Don't you have some kind of a line that you keep open for emergencies or for celebrities? I'm both. I'm a celebrity in an emergency. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, if our luck holds up, and if we stay on the good side of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you, Benny? Doing awesome. You had better have an open line for me at all times, just in case, because, you know, I, I can go across all different, you know, platforms of celebrity stardom. That's right. And you've been uh, doing it for years and thank years, you. too. I thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> You're going to be my security guard. We call you bad boy Benny Mathers, and I think of Jerry Mathers, and then oh. I think about Ken Osmond, who has mm-hmm. crossed that bridge to the other he side, did. Eddie Haskell, and, and yep. I'm sure that Mrs. Cleaver is waiting for him, and he'll compliment her on her dress once again. <laughs> I wish I had a clip if I knew you were going to say that. I wish I had something <laughs> ready. I really do, because it was always uh, a very iconic line, and in the show in general. Oh, it was. Interestingly enough, he said in an interview, this is just all by the by, but Ken Osmond said that it was fascinating to see how how much longevity the show enjoyed in the popular imagination, because he said, we were never a top 10 show. Leave it to Beaver, year after year, and I forget, it was several seasons had enough viewers to keep it on the air without being a top 10 hit. And yet all these years later, everybody knows all the catchphrases and has visions in their head of what it would be like to live on that street and to know the Cleavers, the neighbors, and all their friends. Yep, I hear you. Well, we have a friend we're going to bring on the air today. And the guy has won my admiration a hundred times over. He is an extraordinary gentleman really got a foot each in two worlds. I mean, he is a very distinguished attorney. He is the psychic lawyer, trademark term for him, Mark Anthony, and he is actually qualified to argue cases before the Supreme Court. That's all in his bio. That's all in his bio. Oh, Suzanne, that's her signal to shut up because she's going to give Mark Anthony his mad props. It already starts. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get him on the air. Let's go for it. Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer, who is also known as the psychic explorer, is a fourth-generation psychic medium who communicates with spirits. He's also a successful attorney licensed to practice law in Florida, Washington, D.C., and before the United States Supreme Court. Mark graduated from Mercer Law School with honors, which included the study of law at Oxford University in England. He also studied mediumship in England at the Arthur Finley College for the Advancement of Psychic Science. He is the best-selling author of Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity. His highly anticipated third book is coming soon, Mark Anthony is also known as the Psychic Explorer. The media has referred to him as the Psychic Indiana Jones due to his extensive background in science, quantum physics, survival of consciousness and near-death experiences, history, archaeology, philosophy, and theology. One day, Mark may be lecturing at an Ivy League university about quantum physics and the next off to mystical locations in remote corners of the world to explore ancient ruins and supernatural phenomena. 
Mark appears nationwide on TV and radio. He has appeared on national TV, including the CBS hit show The Doctors, where information he provided during a reading he conducted cracked a cold case murder. He is a featured speaker at conferences, expos, and universities, which include Brown, Columbia, Harvard, and Yale. And we want to welcome him for the 16th time to Manson Mitchell, Mark Anthony. Good to have you on today, Mark. Thank you. Wow. I knew it had been a couple, I thought it was a couple times. I didn't realize it was 16. It's such an honor to be back. And and thank you, Suzanne, and thank you, Gary, and and especially thank you, uh, to all the listeners. When I was reading your bio and it was talking about all those areas that you are interested in and have researched, it reminded me very strongly of the fact that we saw you live in December in Sarasota and we haven't, we've done 16 times on the radio, but I think we've only been together maybe twice live. And, uh, and you were combining all those things into a really, really fascinating presentation that included those elements of archaeology and astrology and history and putting it all together in, in an absolutely fascinating, fascinating lecture. So now I know exactly what you mean when I'm reading your bio. Oh, thank you. Uh, um, yeah, what... what... For, for everyone's benefit, Suzanne's referring to one of the talks I give. In, I've got several different lectures that I present, and that was one of them from my Ancient Mystery series, and that was the Mystical Magi, the Mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. And it was really, for me, it's fun doing all that research and then putting together the, the PowerPoint presentation because I like when I'm examining supernatural or unexplained phenomenon it always amazes me how all the different disciplines come into play. Science, astrophysics, quantum physics, faith, theology, philosophy, and history, they all converge, and it, it helps in our understanding. And we see this whenever, whenever we're studying unexplained phenomena, but particularly at, uh, at mystical and spiritual sites around the world. Uh, I remember when I was at Machu Picchu, and I don't know if I should say this on the radio, but uh, well, it's, been, it's been long enough. Um, I met this voodoo high priestess there, and she got us into Machu Picchu at night, which you're not supposed to go to. And uh, I remember we were at the Temple of the Sun, and she said, now watch how the city glows. So we're, you know, we're at the Temple of the Sun overlooking the ruins of Machu Picchu at an 11,000-foot elevation, or 9,000-foot, excuse me, elevation here in, in, in the Andes. And it really looked like the staircases and the stairways that the Incas had carved into the mountainside. It appeared that they glowed at night. And we were discussing this and looking at it up close. And I don't know if there's ever been a study on this, but it appeared to me that the Incas were using um, pieces of stone that had phosphorescent uh, crystals in it. And that made so much sense to me, because in a pre-electrical society, you know, they didn't sit there and go, oh, boo-hoo, we don't have electric lights. They adapted, they figured out, and we know that phosphorescence occurs. We know that certain things glow. I mean, certainly fireflies, and there's certain mushrooms, and there's types of fish that glow. And uh, also in ocean water, um, there's phosphorescence. So if they had found rocks and, and 
uh, pieces of stone that contain phosphorescence, phosphorus in it, they would they would glow at least for a period at night. So it's always fascinating when you're able to approach something and bring in different disciplines to help you understand it better. And that leads us into a veritable potpourri, Mark Anthony, because there are so many questions that I have wanted to ask you, Suzanne as well, and the people I meet who are very much interested in concepts like near-death experience, the shared death experience, which is something that I believe is going to become more prominent. You don't hear a lot about it, but I think that's going to change here shortly as investigations of the afterlife continue. And then what it's like, what is the state of affairs, what is the structure, if you will, of the afterlife? And over the balance of this hour, Mark, I would love to get into some of that with you. Oh, sure. Um, um, where do you want to begin? Why don't we begin with the as yet underreported, but nevertheless fascinating subject of the shared death experience. And Mark, wouldn't you know that just this morning in discussing your appearance on our show with somebody who checks in regularly in regards to your honorable self, I was able to tell this lady, we need to talk about the shared death experience. It's akin to deathbed visitation, and yet it seems to be shared so that the loved one who is not about to transition out of their body actually participates in the experience in a manner that seems to give them some foretaste of, or a foreshadowing, if you will, of the afterlife. And you know what this lady said to me? She said, when my husband passed, he had Alzheimer's. When he passed, that's what I had. I had a shared experience where I could see his mother waiting for him on the other side, and I got in bed with him, and uh, even though she was choking up, she sang Amazing Grace in order to hand him over into his mother's arms. I mean, how touching is that and how remarkable? It, it, it really is. Um, let me start real quickly with, with what a near-death experience is and then how that relates to a shared death experience. Near-death experiences and NDE um, have been reported for centuries. And in the last 50 years, uh, there's been intensive focus on them. And that's when somebody dies and his or her consciousness leaves the body. There's a sense of floating and they can observe what's known as veridical, in other words, verifiable facts and things what people are saying, what people are doing in proximity to, to the person's body. And then there is a shift to the sensation of going through a dark tunnel into a bright white light. Then, at that point, the person is greeted by individuals who have passed on that that person knows. In other words, close friends and family members, loved ones and spirit. If the NDE lasts a little bit longer, the next phase is encountering... And, and even more intense bright white light, um, which can only be described as the divine power that we call God, and feelings of interconnectedness, in other words, that everyone and everything are energetically linked, um, a sense that reincarnation exists, a sense of, of timelessness, and uh, an incredible lack of pain, mental uh, Intense mental clarity. In other words, it's, it's a beautiful euphoric sensation filled with wisdom, knowledge, and inner peace. And then the person returns to life with uh, the story uh, of those. And critics have, have um, attacked those for a long time, saying that 
it's a purely subjective experience and, and that it could be the symptom of a dying brain uh, because when the brain begins to decompose, the pineal gland of the brain secretes DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is a hallucinogenic. So basically, the skeptics are saying, well, you're giving yourself an LSD trip, except for the fact that DMT can be replicated, and DMT trips and near-death experiences have the similarity, Gary and Suzanne, of the floating sensation and that it feels very spiritual. The difference is DMT trips don't include a journey through a tunnel into the light and encountering deceased loved ones, much less veridical, verifiable facts. For example, in Japan, this is one of many cases that have been documented around the world, this woman died, went into the light, and encountered the spirit of her sister. When she was revived and she said to her parents who were in her hospital room, I saw my sister, but this cannot be, for she is alive. And her parents were weeping, and they said, well, she was killed in a car accident yesterday. Okay, now, if this is a symptom of a dying brain, how is it that this woman encountered the spirit of her sister when she did not know that her sister had died a day before in a different part of Japan? And I mean, I have several, several examples along those lines. So now come share death experiences. And Gary, it's exactly what you said. People in close proximity to somebody who is dying will begin to experience what symptoms and, and uh, factors that are involved in a near-death experience. In other words, they'll see a bright flash of light leaving a person's body when they die, or they'll actually begin to see spirits um, of, of loved ones connected to the person who's dying. They can hear beautiful high-frequency music, a sense of the, where they feel like they're floating. And then one of the most fascinating aspects is experiencing glimpses of that person's lifetime. The proverbial, my life flashed before my eyes. In other words, what is known in the field of near-death and shared death experiences as the life review, where you review everything that has happened in your life. And there's a big, big... Um, resistance by many people to come forward and admit these, but that's changing now. Um, and, and so shared death experiences are nothing new. It's just that a lot of people are afraid to admit it for fear of being chastised or that it goes against your religion or that you're crazy. But a lot of people are experiencing what the dying person is experiencing when those who are observing it, when the bystanders are not in any imminent threat of dying. And I look at that situation, and the first thing that occurs to me as rather a philosophical question, Mark, is that if someone can, as in the case of the lady in Japan, to be on the table, she's anesthetized, they're having to deal with a crucial situation there, it's a crisis, and she comes back to report that she saw her sister without knowing that her sister had crossed over, that to me invites the question. What is the locus? Where is, is the human consciousness actually centered? Because a scientist, a mainstream scientist at least, would say, well, it's encased in our cranium. We're talking about electrical activity. We're talking about biochemical properties that interact. We're talking about synapses firing or not firing when the brain finally dies. 
And the explanation might, I'm speaking for them, okay, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. They might say, well, this was a function of the dying brain and you can come up with all sorts of imagery in an altered state. But my rejoinder to that is, what if human consciousness exists independent of the human brain and uses the brain as a mechanism for generating communication, ideation, and response in interaction with other human beings, but does not depend for its existence on this physical material called the brain? What if it's much bigger than that? I think, as usual, Gary, you hit the nail on the head. Um, because in survival of consciousness studies, the belief is that consciousness is not created by the brain, but merely hosted by it. And it, it's funny when I hear the, uh, see, in the scientific world, or in the consciousness world, you have the Newtonian reductionist materialist on one side, and then you have the, the survival of consciousness uh, field in the NDE studies on the other side. Newtonian reductionist materialist all stems from the work of Sir Isaac Newton. Incredible genius, loved Sir Isaac Newton. But he was limited to the technology of his day, and he said that the, the universe is only what's observable. So basically, in his day, they had microscopes, so you could only go down to a very um, minimal level, and, and they believed that the, the universe um, could basically be miniaturized. In other words, um, the, the uh, microscopic level is just simply a smaller version of, of our world. Well, we now know from the advent of quantum physics that it goes much, 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 much smaller than that to a subatomic particle of electromagnetic energy known as quanta. And so now we're getting quantum physicists who are saying that it appears that consciousness survives physical death for the very reason that you stated, is that think of the brain as a formatting device. In other words, it's a computer hard drive. And your soul, your spirit, your consciousness, whatever term you want to label it, who we are, okay, is, is contained and temporarily hosted in that. So that when the hard drive crashes, who and what we are is uploaded to a higher frequency. And the joke I like to make is if you're Catholic, you go to Microsoft um, Cloud. And if you're a Protestant, you go to Dropbox. No, but, but the thing is... Um, good analogy that we can understand, and that's why um, the material contained on the computer hard drive on our brain is not who and what we are. And it, it serves, the brain serves a purpose for uh, regulating our finite perceptions while living in the material world. What's fascinating about this, Gary and Suzanne, is if you look at the teachings of every great spiritual leader from the Hindu sages of ancient India 5,000 years ago, actually through the ancient Egyptians up through Buddha, Jesus, and, and all the way up into the current era, what do the vast majority of all of them teach us is that the soul pre-exists the body, comes into the body, when the body ceases to function, moves on. And now we know from the laws of conservation of energy that energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. And we know that the brain has an electrical field because we can measure it. We can quantify it. We know that there's an electrical field going on there. And so that when somebody dies and that electrical field leaves the body, 
the consciousness remains intact. And therefore, that explains what a near-death experience is and why when people return, they're able to give accurate depictions and descriptions of what they encountered. Mark, when um, Gary said he wanted to discuss with you the shared death experience, I didn't think that it meant that somebody was remaining on this side of the veil, like one is crossing over, one is not, but they're seeing something. What I thought he was talking about was two people dying at, at exactly the same time. Have you ever done a reading for somebody where say two people died in a car accident or died simultaneously, do they actually cross over together? Have you ever talked to anybody on the other side about that? Oh, many times. Uh, many times I've done readings for people who, um, like you said, were killed in a car accident or who died in, in um, some, some type of um, horrible accident and more than one person that was in that. I did a reading for a family where the, their father and mother had died in a small plane crash, and they both came through, I think, along with the, the pilot. I also did uh, another reading for uh, somebody where uh, he was um, in the Army and, excuse me, the Air Force, and they died in a, a helicopter crash, and both the the young, he's a young uh, soldier I was doing the reading or connecting with, the pilot came through too, and the pilot kept saying, wasn't my fault, wasn't my fault. And it was discovered after the reading that that particular type of helicopter had a design defect and that the military phased out using it because of there were too many crashes. And the official report was it was pilot error. I didn't know any of this. And so when the pilot comes through and goes, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault, and he kept talking about um, something jammed. I didn't understand. I was explaining what it was. And so that is not unusual for people that died simultaneously to come through and, and uh, explain what had happened. Um, I know we're coming up on the half, um, half hour, um, so, but I do want to say that shared death experiences can manifest in a couple different ways. It can be where people in close proximity, let's just call them bystanders, to someone who's dying, um, will pick up and experience what is happening to that person as he or she transitions. Then there's people who are both or one or more people are in imminent danger of death, and they all have the same near-death experience. So ergo, it's shared. Um, I don't know if we have time to get into a long story now. We may have to wait till after the break, but I would definitely like to, to give a more in-depth discussion of one or more per people having the same experience. But but you're saying that that one of them didn't cross over, that they both came back to this side? Correct. Uh, how oh, much time yeah, do we that, have before would, the break? Yeah, no, go ahead and tell that story. Well, um, the most, my favorite story along those lines involves the hot shots. And hot shots um, are firefighters. They're the elite forces of firefighting units. And hot shots are dropped, like, they'll, they'll take them all over the world, about almost two dozen, like 20 to 22 men and or women, um, and they are specially trained to combat all types of fires. And back in 1989, uh, there was a uh, John Hernandez. Um, he was the one who came forward and spoke about this. His unit of hot shots was 
dropped into a mountain fire. Now, firefighting is dangerous under any circumstances, but mountains are even more dangerous because the wind can change on the drop of the dime, the weather can change instantly. And because, you know, this is the mountains and weather patterns are erratic in mountains. And so the hot shots are deployed and everything was going according to procedure and all of a sudden the wind sharply changed direction and intensified. They turned and they heard all these explosions. Trees were actually exploding because the, the wind ramped up the fire and it was moving at, at almost 100 miles an hour right towards the hot shots. Now, they were trapped. There was no way out, but these are the best of the best, and they had a protective gear, and they all hit the ground all over the mountaintop, face down, pulled the protective gear over them. The flames engulfed them. John Hernandez says he can feel the air getting sucked out of, of, uh, around him because of the fire, and he began choking and coughing, and he realized he was suffocating to death. And he said, the next thing I knew, I was floating above the mountaintop, and I'm, I'm hovering above it, and I'm looking around, and I see all the other hot shots, and they're all hovering, and they're looking at me, too. And then he notices his friend, Jose, and Jose had a deformed foot from uh, the way he was born. He had a birth defect, but Jose's foot looked normal. He goes, Jose, your foot's normal. And he realized he didn't say it, that it seemed to be a telepathic impulse. And Jose responded, my foot is normal. And everybody was looking at each other. And then he said, a flash of bright light brought him into this other realm. He said the white was like, uh, he said it was like, it was so pure and white, like the light reflecting off of fresh snow. And he said, but it didn't blind my eyes. And several people stepped forward from it, including his great-grandfather, whom he was very close to. And he said he wanted to go with his great-grandfather, who told him, no, you have to go back. The next thing Hernandez remembers is he's on the ground coughing and choking, and, and he pulled the protective gear off of him. The entire mountainside was charred to a crisp. And he's hacking and coughing, and all the other hot shots emerged. Not one of them were killed. And so they regrouped. This is a highly professional very credible group of people and they all start talking about i felt like i was hovering above this and i thought i saw you and they all started talking they all had the same experience several of them they all talk about jose's foot they all talk about they went into the light a couple of them said we were given a choice whether or not to come back a few more said i had to come back now this is 22 extremely credible extremely extremely fact-oriented people. These were not yogis or Hare Krishnas or New Agey types or, or, or any type of airy-fairy, um, that type of background. These guys were the best of the best firefighters. And so this particular case has been studied for years because there have been other people who, who've had like you know, one or two people almost drown or whatever, and sometimes one dies and one doesn't, and they see the spirit of the one who dies leap, but with the hot shot. And what they couldn't understand is why they weren't killed. Uh, they said, I mean, that whole mountaintop was incinerated. They, they technically, they should have all suffocated, but they did long enough to leave their bodies, see each other, and in a sense, Suzanne and Gary, they became a collective. And, and that's what I talk about 
when I communicate with the other side, the other side is a collective consciousness. In other words, spirits are linked to each other. They come in in groups, and uh, there's a commonality. Uh, usually it's the person that's receiving the reading, but there could be a commonality between the spirits on the other side. Um, and in this case, the, the hotshots temporarily became a collective consciousness, and they all experienced the same uh, near-death experience, which can only be described as a shared-death experience. That's a big wow. That is a big wow, and it leads to so many more questions, including the quality of life, aspects of the afterlife. I would love to get into that with Mark Anthony on the other side, pardon the pun, of a short break. Give us a couple of minutes more of Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer, and so much more. He delves deep into metaphysics and in the nature of life and death, life in between life, and all that stuff in that verdant valley that we love to consider in our minds. Stay tuned. You're right here at Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back medium Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer with evidence of eternity and shared near-death experiences. On Saturday, we feature Pamela Osley in an encore presentation about the meaning of the colors in your aura. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Going our own way every day. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special Sweet 16th appearance by Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. If um, people would like to get your books, and you have a, a couple of really great books that we have on, on our bookshelves, um, where would they get either Never Letting Go or Evidence of Eternity? And how can they be in touch with you, Mark? If people go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com, the same name as my book, Evidence of Eternity, I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter. You can order your books through there because it will take you to the link on Amazon. 
um, and you can see my calendar of events because my 2020 tour is now basically online, and the Manson Mitchell Show is a 2020 tour event. So for people who want to book a telephone reading with me, and telephone readings are just as accurate as in-person readings, when you fill out the application form on the um, schedule of telephone reading, if you mention Manson Mitchell in the application form, you will qualify for a reduced fee reading. So I'm making this available to listeners of Manson Mitchell. Uh, for people who want to have a reading with me, please visit evidenceofeternity.com. But to get the, the reduced fee, you have to mention that you are listening to Manson Mitchell. And, and well, they should be. Thank That's you. Right. That's a great idea. Yeah, and I, I'm going to download this. I'm channeling this. That's called cross-promotion. <laughs> well, and we're, you know, all, we're, we're, all we're, all, we're all under a lot of financial stress right now because, yeah. I mean, the COVID was like 38 million Americans are out of work. I mean, this is, it hasn't been this bad since the Great Depression. Right. Um, and, and things are going to come back because if history's taught us anything, it is that bad financial and medical time, you know, pandemics come to an end. But in the meantime, we've got to survive this. And so um, uh, that's why I'm, I'm making this available, but people have to, to let, uh, to, to notate uh, that they, they're listeners of Manson Mitchell. I appreciate you Excellent. no end for that, Mark. That's that's wonderful, and I hope people will take advantage of that special offer. We were talking about a lot of stuff, actually, about consciousness, about the afterlife, about near-death experiences, about shared-death experiences. And, Mark, I thought I would just add this into the mix. I have talked to more than one person since we kind of took a turn on Manson Mitchell toward dealing with afterlife spirit communication. We have made friends of may, many, many mediums, including yourself, of course. And in the process, I'll get into conversations sometimes, and someone will say, my husband died two or three years ago, and I can't wait. I mean, I'm not ready to give up yet. I still want to live for a while. There are things I want to do, want to experience, but I can't wait to be with my husband again and maybe their pet, maybe they had a child that died, whatever the circumstances. And the, the crux of their question is, will I be able to A, see my loved ones on the other side, and B, spend all of eternity with them? And I go, wow, that's really two questions. <laughs> and I would love to have you address that. People must come to you, Mark, all your public appearances are getting a reading, of course. And they'll say, you know, my husband died. I can't wait to be with him again forever. Is that really how it works over there? Well, forever is difficult for us to wrap our head around. Um, in the 15,000 plus readings that I've done and the close to, if not more than 100,000 spirits I've communicated with, I've yet to meet anybody on the other side who's, oh, boo-hoo, I'm dead, I'm miserable. Spirits are always happy because they're pure energy. and Energy doesn't get old, sick, or die. But that being said, I want to preface, uh, the, you know, before I answer your question, um, for people who are depressed and who are thinking of terminating their lives, I'm not in any shape, form, or fashion encouraging this. And the spirits I've communicated with are always telling me they don't want to encourage people here to, to die by suicide. And yes, the other side's wonderful, but we are here living in the material world for a reason. 
and that's because we can experience things in this finite, limited, uh, vulnerable condition that we cannot when we're a purely energetic entity. And every day that we're alive is a gift and a privilege. And believe me when I tell you, many days it does not feel like a gift or a privilege. But there are reasons why we are living here, and there is to be no rush to leave the material world. Now, and and if you are feeling uh, depressed, there are suicide hotlines, there are caring professionals who are there to listen. So, and one of the things in studying the other side is we are not alone. Certainly spirits are not, but we in this world are not alone. Yes, spirits are around us, but you can pick up a phone and call for help, and there will be somebody there who does care and can help. Now, when it comes to will you spend all of eternity with your loved ones, It doesn't matter if the person you um, love died 50 years ago. You will, when you transition from this world, encounter the spirits of your loved ones. And yes, you will be with them. But the one thing that that, uh, pretty much everybody, if not everybody, who's had a near-death experience has discovered, and for a legitimate medium, in, in spirit communication, is that we go through a series of incarnations. In other words, reincarnation. And it appears that we go through reincarnation with, um, it, it seems like our life is, is like a cast of a play, and so we may be cast in different roles in these various lives, but you're going to go through several incarnations with somebody that you love, both on this side and then on the other side when you revert to a purely energetic state. Now, the concept of forever, I would say in a sense, uh, yes. Um, But the thing is, we're really getting deep here. There will come a time when life on planet Earth is going to cease to exist. And I hope it's not because we're stupid enough to blow ourselves into smithereens with nuclear weapons. But at some point, the sun's going to burn out. And I've, I've communicated with spirits who said that, and when that happens, all the spirits and all the energy here will transfer to another planet, another dimension, and continue the cycle onward. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Don't we get to go to the Michelangelo painting with the angels and the harps and the red wine? <laughs> you know, it's like, doesn't that get to happen? And I got the distinct impression they were laughing at me, and they said, Mark, energy is eternal. It is an eternal journey. And then uh, the, the message to me was, why do you worry of such things? You are where you are because you are supposed to be where you are, and you must focus on what you're doing there. When you get here, then you will encounter this. And it's like, huh, kind of that old Yoda um, focused on where you are and what you're doing, which apparently is, is a truth. Well, you make a great case for people remaining alive and not taking their own lives because even when you feel like you have no reason to live or you are feeling quite in despair, there is still something here for you to experience or get before it is your time to go back to the spirit world. And, you know, maybe it is the loneliness or the heartache 
But I would think that if you don't want to experience that and you say, well, I'm, I'm just going to take my own life because I don't want to experience this loneliness and despair, that you would probably be reincarnated in a similar situation until you got the lesson. That seems to be when you, the, the two religions, um, well, there's, there's several that, that believe in reincarnation. Um, Hinduism and Buddhism, Jainism, which is sort of a, an offshoot of Hinduism. Um, if you basically, they say that you need to untie your knots. And so if you think of all these, you know, knots that you tie in your life, your stress, your anger, your depression, and then, you know, you're depressed, so therefore you die from suicide, and you did not play out your life the way you were supposed to, then you will be reincarnated to with those same knots and even more and so that is exactly what what i have have gleaned through communication with the other side about reincarnation and it's hard to leave this world with everything balanced out nice and neat because you know we all have tempers we all get impatient we all you know do things because we're human you know, we'd all like to go around being all saint-like, and people say, well, you know, you have to be like Jesus. Well, he got mad, too, at the temple, okay? And, you know, for the money changers and then the people making profits off of uh, uh, at, the, at the temple. So, you know, even even somebody on that exalted status uh, had human uh, tendencies and foibles. And, and I'm not saying that to, to, uh, to disparage anything about about Christ, but the thing is, Human beings are not perfect. But that being said, uh, the law of karma is also something that you should be aware of. And it does seem to to play into um, near-death experiences. And here's why. The, the life review, and many, many people who have an NDE talk about their life review in that you get all these glimpses from your life. And there are some instances of what's known as the, the distressing near-death experience, the DNDE, which have also been called the hellish near-death experience. And I don't believe in the existence of hell, and I've had this discussion with, with some very prominent NDE researchers, and in about 5% of the cases, people talk about dying, and they're going through a tunnel, but it isn't until, into the light, and they go into this dark and foreboding realm and they talk about like being seized by like something like like feels like like a snake or or these dark entities. And the question here: Does hell exist in the archetypal sense? Well, in the thousands of readings I've done and all the, the mediums that I know, there is no hell. Hell is a is a construct, and we can do a whole whole show on hell. Maybe I'll come back around Halloween. We'll do a hell show. <laughs> but um, but the life review can also be. And this is what a lot of the, the experts and myself, I, I agree with them. This, the life review is where your soul, your higher consciousness, that is devoid of the ego, is reviewing your life to determine if you've done positive or negative things with your life. And those that have the distressing NDE, the hellish near-death experience, it's sort of like a karma, cosmic wake-up call because it's a near-death experience because you come back 
and the people that have the hellish NDEs, when they come back, let me tell you something, there's a huge turnaround rate because they don't want to go back to that dark realm, whether it exists or not. So the DNDE, the hellish near-death experience, is the proverbial wake-up call, and you are inflicting that upon your own self. Inflicting it on yourself. Now I'd like to go back to something you said before the break. There was a lot of good talk happening, and in the middle of it, there was a little something you said in reporting what someone was communicating to you from the other side, Mark, and I thought, wow, now that brings up a whole philosophical question. There was someone who died tragically, accidentally, and they said, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. And in reporting that, you communicated a sense of urgency. That leads me to ask you, Mark, when people go over there with unresolved conflicts, let's say, or there's some tragedy that they feel they caused, whether rightly or wrongly, do you know of souls that go over and try to communicate to their loved ones their burden of guilt? Because we like to think we shed that guilt when we cross the other side. It's milk and honey across the river, ideally. And yet I hear stories about people who try to unburden themselves of guilt after they die. I've, I've not encountered a, well, I can't say that directly. In my book, Never Letting Go, um, one of the, the most gripping stories in that book, I did a reading for this woman whose name was Vicky Rios Martinez, and her little boy, Juni Rios Martinez, was abducted, raped, and murdered by a serial killer. And I, I was honored to do the reading for her, and Junie came through. And at some point during the reading, the killer came through. Now, what was interesting is uh, I did not realize that the killer had actually been executed. Um, because even though it all happened in Florida, I was, uh, I was actually out of the state for like a month or so when he was finally executed. And so by the time I got back, all the headlines had it, you know, died down. But uh, you know, I didn't know anything really about about the case and the killer came through and Junie said he's not evil here and but he came through and he said he did apologize to to um, to Vicky he wanted to apologize and he what he said was it was really one of the it was a very unusual reading because also my head was filled like static and he said, that's what my consciousness was like. He said, I was insane. And he, and he was telling me how he, the, the sickening sexual impulses that he felt. And he said that it was as if I was filth in a garbage can. And I got like this slimy feeling. And he said that, you know, I'm no longer that. I'm no longer like that. But I could also tell he was on a different frequency. Junie was on this really high, higher vibration. He seemed to be on a lower vibration, and even though he was no longer evil, he had the capacity now to reflect upon the, the negative deeds that he did, and even though he was a serial killer, um, he was able to see what he had done, but was removed from wanting to do these things anymore, and he kept explaining basically that that he was a psychopath and he was driven by these desires and now he's free of that but it in and 
and it was really amazing, especially when Vicky said, tell him I do forgive him. And I was like, what? And she said, Mark, she said, forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself. And when I went to his execution, he was already sedated when I got there because I wanted him to see the forgiveness in my eyes. Hating him for the rest of my life is only hurting me. And, you know, and I, and I wrote this in Never Letting Go, and I mean this with every fiber of my being. I always wondered what it was like, would be like to meet a saint. And that day I think I did. Because anyone who could forgive somebody to find that inner strength and that enlightenment to thank to, to, to forgive somebody who did such a heinous and, and horrific thing I mean you'd have to be a saint you know it, it reminds me I'm, I'm going to tie this up a little bit with what you were talking about earlier and that is um, that there is no physical place called hell. There's no devil with a pitchfork and the cloven feet and all that red no, hot fire it. burning. Yeah. But, you know, when you're looking at where people are on this side and where people are on the other side, we have, we have talked to a lot of, of people, a lot of experts on this side that talk about heaven and hell being states of mind here. And so you can think that you're here on this side, on this earthly plane, and that your life is a hell. Your life is horrible. You have, you know, whatever, whatever problems you have are creating a miserable existence for you. It could be, you know, health, money, relationships, any of those, you know, big five there. And the same thing occurs with heaven. You can be in a state of mind on this side that no matter what is going on in the physical realm, you are at peace. You are loving your life. You're loving your, your home, your bank account, your spouse, your children, your job. You can create a heaven or a hell here, why couldn't you create a, a heaven or a hell on the other side? It, supposedly, you don't dramatically change or shift from like a polar opposite to what you have been doing here. It's all a continuum. So that yeah. when you're reincarnated, you don't go from being a Mother Teresa to a serial killer. That's my understanding. Yeah, it, it is a continuum. And while I tell people that there is no hell, you know, with the, the like you said, the, the horned, cloven foot jerk running around sticking people with a pitchfork, there certainly is reincarnation, though. And if you think that you're going to get away with something, because, you know, we've all seen those people that they seem to dump on everybody their whole lives, slime their way through life, and, and treat everybody with disrespect and them and, and uh, take advantage of them, and boy, nothing ever happens to them. Well, it's been made very clear to me from the other side. It's like, that's what you think, <laughs> um, because the thing about karma is it never loses an address. And so, it, but it's more like what you're saying, Suzanne, it, it's a continuum. And so, yeah, you're not going to go from being a serial killer to a Mother Teresa, 
um, but you're also not going to escape the repercussions of what you've done. I was doing a reading for this lady, and her son had been brutally murdered by the, the, the there was three people that broke in, and one of them, um, it was this ex, it's a long story, but anyway, three people, the ex-girlfriend and two thugs break in to rough this guy up. Well, he puts up a good fight, and um, one pulls a gun and shoots him, and this guy was a tough guy, and he ran out of his house, and the killer ran after him, kept shooting, shooting, finally shot him in the street, shot him in the head. So I'm doing the reading. And her son comes through, and then all of a sudden another person steps in. And it's this woman, and she's holding an axe. And I keep getting Lizzie, Lizzie, Lizzie. And I'm describing this. I go, this is really weird. And the client says, she goes, that is weird because I just did a a study of my family's genealogy. And she said, I'm a direct descendant of Lizzie Borden. And I'm like, what? And Lizzie Borden was this notorious axe murderess in, in the late Victorian era. And in the vision, Lizzie Borden walks over to this jack-o'-lantern with the axe and starts hacking it to bits. And I'm describing this to the client. And she looks at me and says, justice will be done. And so I said, okay, she's hacking up a jack-o'-lantern. So that to me indicates something right around Halloween. And the client said, well, this is really weird, Mark because the killer's trial is scheduled, jury selection scheduled on October 31st, which is Halloween. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And it was still a couple months before this. And so, so I said, okay, i got to make a note of this one. Well, then about two months after Halloween, I called her, and I said, hey, do you remember? She goes, of course I remember you. And I said, what happened? She goes, well, the trial started on October 31st, and the killer was convicted on all counts, and he's sentenced to life without parole. And she goes, I can't believe the spirit of Lizzie Borden told us that. I said, well, I never had the spirit of a homicidal maniac come through and make anyone feel good before. And she <laughs> said, well, I guess there's a first time for everything. <laughs> so, uh, that is remarkable. Idea. Remark, remarkable. We're going to remark sometime really soon. Always a pleasure, Mark Anthony, to have you join us. You're an extraordinary man and the stories you tell give us a lot of hope and keep us entranced, that's for sure. Keep us on the path of wondering what all of this leads to, what it's all about. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to Manson Mitchell. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific. Of course, we always live stream at 1150kknw.com. If you happen to be out of radio range, it probably means you're listening to us online right now, and we love you for it. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay tuned. Coming up next. The Christine Upchurch Show, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, followed by American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Right here at Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150.